Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that means it is time for some science and skepticism. As always, you can find me throughout the week at uh, the Facebook page. Yes, I know, but it's still the only game in town. And you can hear this and other episodes as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes, Stitcher, and now even on Spotify. <laughs> so um, I wanted to take a minute to uh, acknowledge something that's pretty somber, but I think it's important because one of the things that I was reading is that several studies have shown that remembrance of this event, which is, of course, Holocaust Remembrance Day, that uh, it's actually fading in the memories of people, and that is a very dangerous thing. Um, and so, yes, uh, new studies have shown that the horrors of the Holocaust are being forgotten. And so, like science, history is an important subject, which we need to be vigilant in teaching to our children. Now, of course, there have been many and will be many more, unfortunately, uh, given the current state of humanity, genocides beyond that of the actual Holocaust, and they have affected people all over the world. And so it is for all people, but especially, obviously, on this day, for victims and the families of victims of the Holocaust that we uh, try and remember. And it is extremely important to do your part to keep our country from slipping further into a place where such atrocities could happen here. Of course, that is again, as we have already had our share of pogroms, especially against the native inhabitants of this land. Okay, so now that we've had that sombering note, let us actually start the show. First up, I wanted to talk about the always ridiculous and completely infuriating Dirty Dozen list put out by the Environmental Working Group. Now, in case you couldn't tell, <laughs> I don't have a lot of respect for this list. Um, and I'm especially annoyed by it because it's so pervasive. There was a time when I actually had a... Uh, magnet that had these, uh, you know, make sure you get these as organic and these ones are okay to eat as conventional on my refrigerator. And so one of the amazing, amazing champions of uh, evidence-based uh, science and uh, science communication and just an all-around amazing person is Kevin Folta. He is a land-grant scientist in uh, Florida, and he actually studies agriculture for real. <laughs> and so he had a recent piece uh, listing half a dozen reasons to reject the dirty dozen. And so first off, the Environmental Working Group doesn't actually do any testing themselves. They simply take data from the USDA, which they then manipulate to make it seem like farmers are adding multiple pesticides to plants. And many of the combinations they suggest are virtually never used by actual farmers. They also look at the stats of residue on fresh fruits and vegetables, not what consumers are actually exposed to. 
They manipulate the data to try and make you afraid of chemistry. Uh, you know, there's this whole thing going on in the uh, anti-science campaigns today where, you know, I want my things to be chemical free. Well, then you literally want them to be an empty vacuum because everything is made of chemicals. Everything is made of chemicals. And so it's just ridiculous to try and say that you want things that are chemical free. There are a lot of things that you can't pronounce that are completely and utterly natural and perfectly good for you. And there are things that you can easily pronounce that are terrible for you. And the same goes for the opposite. And so it's just very upsetting to deal with this constantly people trying to say that perfectly good fruits and vegetables are not to be eaten. And so, for instance, they say that strawberries are one of the most dangerous and you should always try and get them organic. But strawberry farmers let their own children eat strawberries straight from the plant. That is an absolute fact. And so things like this hurt farmers, especially smaller scale conventional farmers. Huge farming co-ops can afford to take the dings from this, but the kinds of small scale farmers that everyone says they champion, those who are using conventional means to produce produce, they are affected by this kind of scaremongering. And scare tactics like this turn people away from produce in general. So again, they're hurting the bottom, bottom lines of farmers who are literally working to feed the world and themselves with the best produce that they can possibly grow. And when people are discouraged from eating fruits and vegetables by scare tactics, they're a lot less likely to be getting a healthy, balanced diet. And of course, it is especially harmful to those with lower incomes who might, instead of being able to go and get the more expensive organic alternative, simply forgo buying fruits and vegetables altogether because they worry about the possibility of pesticides. And finally, it encourages food waste because produce that is avoided in the stores is usually ended, usually ends up being discarded, often not in composting, but in landfills. And so it's not able to feed anyone at all. And of course, I will add one of my personal favorite pet peeves about all of this to the list, which is that it strongly implies that organic produce is not grown using pesticides. And this is completely untrue. In fact, some organic pesticides are actually more dangerous to use than those used on conventional crops. So please eat your fruits and vegetables without fear. Even though I say that they're more dangerous to use than conventional in those organics, even that organic pesticide is still not dangerous in a way that is going to affect you as a consumer who eats it. Usually they're only uh, dangerous to the people who are actually uh, applying them to the plants. Uh, usually by the time they get to you, they've been thoroughly washed and everything is fine. Organic, 
or traditional. So I don't want to fearmonger about those organic vegetables either. I'm just saying that the idea that organics are somehow free of pesticides is just wrong. It is just completely and utterly dishonest and wrong. Conventional produce is just fine. Farmers who sell produce put that same produce on their own tables to feed their own families. So save yourself money and hassle by getting whatever produce is available to you and which you can afford. Okay, <laughs> so now that I've gotten that uh, rant of sorts out of the way, though science-based, thank you very much, uh, I do want to move on. And so a lot of the stories tonight, I think most of them, it turns out, are actually going to be, we're going to do another uh, skepticism heavy show. So there'll definitely be some science in here, but it's mostly about sort of skeptical topics. And I think that it's important uh, to talk about skepticism every once in a while, especially um, because even scientists can be caught up by not being skeptical, even though you would think that skepticism is a toolkit engaged in by uh, pretty much all scientists, you'd be surprised. Sometimes I read about experiments that scientists have done and thought, oh, you know, this is a great result. And I think, yeah, but you didn't think about this or that thing that could totally have skewed your results. Um, a lot of that has to do with things where uh, they're looking into to the paranormal, for instance. So a lot of the Stanford experiments that were done in the uh, 70s, you know, I look at the protocol and I think I can think of four different ways in which I could beat this protocol um, because I'm looking at it skeptically. But anyways, let us actually get into it. So I am a bit late to the party, but I do like to occasionally just put out there the disclaimer about some of these ridiculous stories that you see uh, passing by on Facebook or being breathlessly talked about on uh, some sort of morning television program. So I want to assure you that kids are almost certainly not snorting condoms. <laughs> uh, whoever thought about this, I, I humans are amazing in the weird and wonderful and often terrible things that they can come up with. Um, and this is definitely one of the weirder and more terrible. Um, but it is not some sort of phenomenon. In fact, most of the videos that are being shown on these news programs and in other media sources are actually coming from 2013. And even back in 2013, it didn't become a craze. It was just some silly people did it. And then it was talked about breathlessly for a while. And then people just stopped doing it because it was incredibly dumb. <laughs> and so media coverage currently is almost certainly being fueled by the recent and also overblown panic about youngsters filming themselves eating Tide Pods. Once that panic had died down, other weird things that kids might or might not be doing became fair game for a new panic. So while some kids and probably adults have done this, it's much less than the media makes it out to be. 
teens are actually usually smarter than the media ever gives them credit for being. And of course, mainstream media coverage of any trend can have a lag time so long that the trend has burned out, at least uh, especially with internet uh, memes and uh, internet phenomenons. Uh, so by the time those folks at the network morning shows find out about them and sit around talking breathlessly about kids these days, those kids have already moved on to the next thing. <laughs> and so their parents are watching this and, you know, the kids are like, that's no, I don't, I haven't done that in like a month. <laughs> um, and so I, I've actually had that experience where I've been, you know, home on a vacation or something and turned on the morning show and been like, wait, that's from like a month and a half ago on the internet. Like, why are you talking about this now? And they're talking about it like they've never heard of it before. Um, so that is always a weird thing that happens on those shows occasionally. Um, it's always weird when it happens. But anyways, yes. So kids almost certainly not snorting condoms. And if they are, if you know of a kid who has snorted a condom, um, yeah, maybe make sure that they're okay. Because <laughs> that is not a good thing to do, um, especially if it's a condom that is not meant to be used with oral sex. It can have uh, chemicals. In this case, it can actually have chemicals that could be dangerous when exposed to your mucous membranes. So yeah, don't don't do it and don't talk about it because it's not a thing. And talking about it could potentially, again, make it a thing. So let's move on and talk about several stories having to do with, I have to admit, one of my favorite things to talk about, <laughs> which is aliens. So new research suggests that a lack of phosphorus might be responsible for the lack of alien species, as phosphorus is an essential component of life as we know it. For instance, phosphorus is an essential component of ATP, which if you remember high school chemistry, is the chemical used by cells to store and transfer energy. It is pretty much the uh, essential part of our cells. Without ATP, we nothing would exist uh, in an organic way on this planet. And so scientists believe that phosphorus on the Earth came from meteor strikes early in the solar system's history. Now, this study looked at data from the William Herschel Telescope in the Canary Islands. And what they did was they looked at infrared light produced by phosphorus and iron in the Crab Nebula and compared it to previous data on Cassiopeia A, another supernova remnant. What they found was a significantly reduced presence of phosphorus in the Crab Nebula. The two explosions seem to differ from each other, perhaps because Cass A results from the explosion of a rare supermassive star, noted astronomer Phil Kagan from Cardiff University in the UK and a member of the research team. We've just asked for more telescope time to go back and check in case we've missed some phosphorus-rich regions in the Crab Nebula. Now, phosphorus is actually created during these supernovae, which is why they're looking in um, the remnant clouds for it. Now, 
Part of the problem is that it's actually proved difficult to determine just how much a supernova produces. And so to have two remnants of supernovae that have such different uh, values of phosphorus sort of adds to that question without helping. (laughs) And so the research actually indicates that only certain supernovae may produce large amounts of phosphorus. Now, this research is extremely preliminary. Uh, they were actually presenting the paper at a conference. Uh, and so the scientists will need to both go back and confirm the data. And they will also need to try and understand why it is this way. So they have some theories, but uh, these are really just very preliminary theories. It may be due to the different ages of the stars or the amount of material present in the star or it could be a number of other things. Whatever the cause, however, if the results bear out, it might spell disaster for the search for alien life. If phosphorus is sourced from supernovae and then travels across space in in meteoric rock, I'm wondering if a young planet could find itself lacking in reactive phosphorus because of where it was born, says one of the team, Jane Greaves from Cardiff University. In that case, life might really struggle to get started out of phosphorus-poor chemistry on another world otherwise similar to our own. And so, yeah, it might turn out that the answer is chemistry. That might be the answer to, uh, to the question of why haven't we found any uh, aliens. It might be down to a lack of phosphorus, uh, which would be a really sad reason, um, but it may be. Uh, so on the other side of the coin, uh, we have a couple of different reasons for why we might be uh, missing the obvious signs of aliens that are already out there. So first off, researchers from the University of Cadiz, Spain, think that it's possible that humans might be missing aliens alien signals due to the gorilla effect. The gorilla effect references a famous example of how the mind plays tricks on us and how the amount of information we can process is limited. So in this, in a video, several young people are shown either bouncing a ball or passing it around. The subject is asked to count how many times the ball is bounced or passed. Afterwards, they are asked if they noticed anything unusual during the time that they were watching the ball. More than half of the people who view the video fail to notice that a person in a gorilla suit has walked through the video. This phenomenon is actually called inattention blindness. And so neuropsychologist Gabriel de la Tour and Manuel Garcia suggest that we may be missing alien signals because we are so intent on finding them in a narrow band of understanding. When we think of other intelligent beings, we tend to see them from our own perspective and conscience and our own perceptive and conscious sieve. However, we are limited by our, we're limited by our sue generous vision of the world, and it's hard for us to admit it, says Dilator. What we are trying to do with this differentiation is to contemplate other possibilities. For example, beings of dimensions that our mind cannot grasp, or intelligences based on dark matter or energy forms. Remember, dark matter or energy make up makes up almost fifty 
95%, excuse me, of the universe. And so we still don't even really know anything beyond that about it. And of course, there are even, there is even the possibility that other universes exist, as the texts of Stephen Hawking and other scientists indicate. Now, alternative universes aside, I am intrigued by the idea of communicating, uh, of communication that is based on dark matter or energy, because if that is happening, we absolutely positively would not be able to find it. And so in order to test this theory in regards to searching for a specific object, the researchers actually did an experiment. They asked 137 people to distinguish aerial photographs with artificial structures like roads and bridges from other natural elements like rivers and mountains. And so in one of the images that was presented, the figure of a tiny gorilla was embedded. Now, it turns out that there was a rather surprising uh, result in some respects. I, it kind of makes sense once you know and then think about it. It turns out that people whose cognitive style was rated as intuitive had a better rate of finding the gorilla than those whose cognitive style was judged as rational, according to tests performed before the photographs were shown to the subjects. And so this may suggest that having an ordered approach to the situation actually blinds the individual to unique possibilities. The researchers also looked at images of a structure in the Akator crater on the dwarf planet Ceres in order to discuss a completely different possibility. And so it might be that some of the things that we think look like products of intelligence are merely misidentified natural objects. Our structured mind tells us that this structure looks like a triangle with a square inside, something that theoretically is not possible in Ceres, says Delator. But maybe we are seeing things where there are none, what in psychology is called pareidolia. The opposite could also be true. We can have the signal in front of us and not perceive it or be unable to identify it. If this happened, it would be an example of the cosmic gorilla effect. In fact, it could have happened in the past, or it could be happening right now. Um, and of course, that is a very real thing. Now, one caveat here is that this is all speculative when when uh, extrapolated on to the search for extraterrestrial life. Uh, and so, yes, it's very there's a very interesting result there where people who are more intuitive found the gorilla more than people who are considered more rational thinkers. That's a really interesting result, and it's a very science-based result. But the rest of this is extrapolation. Um, and so it's a very interesting extrapolation, and it's extrapolation rather than just fantasy because it is based on real science. Um, but I do want to put in that caveat that I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm saying that it's an interesting fact-based extrapolation. And so the researchers suggest there might be three kinds of intelligent civilizations. And what they did was they used five factors. Um, and so the researchers suggest that the five factors would be biology, longevity, so psychosocial aspects, technological progress, and distribution in space. The first order is a civilization like ours, which might be wiped out by either natural or unnatural means, 
such as nuclear war. A second order civilization would be characterized by longevity of its members who would control quantum and gravitational energy, manage space-time, and be able to explore galaxies. The third order would be indistinguishable from many people's perceptions of God. Uh, it would have eternal life. It would be capable of create, creating in multidimensional and multiverse spaces. And it would have an absolute dominion of dark energy and matter. Now, again, the researchers also stressed that their work is theoretical and does not yet have any real evidence to support such a hierarchy. We were well aware that the existing classifications are too simplistic and are generally only based on the energy aspect. The fact that we use radio signals does not necessarily mean that other civilizations also use them, or that the use of energy resources and their dependence are the same as we have. Therefore, they created this theoretical framework that looks beyond mere energy use. So perhaps non-terrestrial beings either aren't out there to a, due to a lack of phosphorus, or they are out there and we're just too blind to perceive them. Either way, I can tell you one thing with almost 100% certainty. They did not visit our ancient ancestors and they did not help build any of the monolithic sites that dot the world. As I am at pains to remind people, our ancestors were just as smart and just as clever as we are. They had far fewer distractions to keep them occupied, and they had access to a huge amount of raw manpower. And in many cases, they also had access to uh, animal power. Now, some places they didn't, so that, that depended. But there is no artificial object that has been created on this planet that couldn't have been created by humans. <laughs> And so, again, I have this uh, guilty habit of enjoying uh, things about aliens, and I've been, for some reason that I'm, I'm still not quite sure of myself, uh, I, have been talk I have been watching uh, some episodes of Ancient Aliens, and so uh, when I saw this next story, I immediately thought of how it would be showcased on that show inside a little bit. But we're going to take a break before we talk about this next story. And so, yeah, come back and we will talk about more about uh, first non-aliens and then another. Uh, I have one more story about the possible search for alien life uh, and then some other stuff. So I'm going to take a break and be back in just a few moments. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old, indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio.
Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, on... look out. Look out. <laughs> Oh. oh my god, Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No genius. I'm not serious. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So, when you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Okay, we are back. And I promised some more talk about potential aliens. But first, I wanted to talk about Nazca Lines. And of course, this is connected to aliens because it is constantly brought up as one of the things that must have been created for aliens. Because there's no way that primitive people could have done these things without having some kind of flying contraption. Sigh. <laughs> Again, there is nothing that has been created on this planet that is man-made or that is unnaturally made uh, that is not able to have been created by man. The ancestors of the Peruvian people 
created the Nazca Mines. There have been numerous, numerous archaeological uh, demonstrations of how this could have been done, how you can create a glyph on the ground, not being able to see it from above. It is not that hard. And again, our ancestors were just as smart as we are. And so, yeah, but this is actually still a really cool thing. So it turns out that over 50 new lines have been discovered in Peru. And some of them actually date to centuries before the iconic figures that we know, like the hummingbird and the monkey, uh, were created. And so these glyphs are thought to have been the work of the Paracas and Topara people who lived between 500 BCE and 200 CE. They were the ancestors of the Nazca people uh, who inhabited the area between 200 and 700 CE. Interestingly, most of the new warriors, uh, de new figures depict warriors, uh, and they were actually created on hillsides so that from certain angles, they actually could be viewed by people on the ground. So this seems to have been the sort of first iteration of these amazing glyphs. Now, as you know, and as I've mentioned, the later Nazca lines are distinguishable because they are almost always on flat plains where you can't tell uh, what they are when you're on the ground. They were created by pushing aside the top layer of red desert pebbles that are on this plain, and it reveals the paler layer of soil underneath. And of course, they have fascinated people ever since their rediscovery. And a lot of people have assigned them fabulous and weird uh, origin stories. But really, honestly, they are almost certainly for ceremonial purposes. Uh, even though if you are uh, knowledgeable in archaeology, that is often a kind of weasel uh, word or phrase that means we're sure they did something with them, but we're not quite sure. Um, but in this case, it's almost certain that they were either simply made to uh, honor the gods or as processional roots and things like that that were actually used in real rituals. And so this discovery is very cool, though, because, again, it represents people that are older than those Nazca who made the more famous glyphs. This means that it is a tradition of over a thousand years that precedes the famous geoglyphs of the Nazca culture, which opens the door to a new hypothesis about its function and meaning. Archaeologist Johnny Ilsa of the Peruvian Ministry of Culture, who is in charge of restoring and protecting the lines told National Geographic. And actually, there is a National Geographic video that I can link to that actually has some of them, has some aerial shots where you can see them. And it's really pretty incredible. And so part of this, part of the reason that they found these is that they've been working on kind of a crowdsourcing science research um, approach, which is using satellite imagery to find locations of potential interest. And so uh, Sarah Parkak, who founded the Global Explorer Initiative, 
uh, is actually doing this for lots of archaeological sites. But in this case, uh, it is in Peru. And so after the initial survey by the crowdsourcing, uh, Castillo actually physically visited the sites uh, and found little of interest. But then the team imaged the site with drones using both photography and 3D scanning. And that's when they found the dozens of geoglyphs that had never before been noticed. And unfortunately, part of that is because degradation and erosion over time had actually hidden the lines from view. But with drones, it's actually much easier to find these sorts of things. So it's very exciting. Um, the new glyphs do fall within the UNESCO protected site between Nazca and Palma, but they haven't yet been registered by the Peruvian government. Uh, but it turns out, luckily, that they are not under immediate threat, so it should be okay. And so, yeah, it is very exciting. And, you know, there's a huge amount of, uh, work that is being done now with satellite data and drones and all sorts of things that are finding these amazing archaeological uh, sites that we never knew were there until we developed this amazing technology. So even though it is the far past, we are still learning a lot about it. Okay, so that is the Nazca lines. And now we're going to switch back to the search for alien life. Now, obviously, I'm a skeptic. I make no uh, <laughs> excuses for that. I am very much a skeptic, but I am absolutely open to the idea that there could be aliens out there. It seems statistically improbable that we are all alone in the vastness of the universe, unless it turns out that we're the only place that has phosphorus, apparently. So I think that the idea that there is life out there and that we just can't see it because of our limited human faculties is much more likely than the idea that none exists. However, I do continue to be a strict skeptic on the belief that aliens have visited the Earth, either in history or in the present day. And so, yeah, I think it's very important to distinguish those two things, that I totally believe that there is alien life out there, but I totally don't believe that they're hanging out here and abducting us and doing weird experiments on our cows. Um, I'm actually going to throw out the idea that uh, the cow mutilations are much more likely to have been some sort of weird government experimentation than aliens. Uh, <laughs> that is a much more uh, rooted in possibility fact or a rooted in possibility uh explanation than aliens. Okay, so I actually do support the continued search for exoplanets, even though I sometimes poo-poo it a little bit because people get very excited about it, even though these places are extremely far away and we would never be able to get there. It's still very cool to find them. And it is about to get another boost. On Monday, SpaceX will launch the $200 million Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, and it should spend the next two years looking for exoplanets by detecting the slight dimming caused by their transit in front of their home star. And so, so far we found around 4,000 exoplanets, including uh, seven Earth-like planets around the uh, star in the TRAPPIST-1 system. 
Now, this new satellite will replace the Kepler spacecraft, which has been finding all of these exoplanets. Um, it's been doing an amazing job, obviously, uh, but it is running out of fuel. And TESS will also focus on stars closer to our own solar system. TESS's job is to find an old-fashioned address book of all the planets spread out all across the sky. Spread out around all the stars in the sky, said Sarah Seeger, astrophysicist and planetary scientist at MIT, as well as the deputy science director for the TESS mission. George Ricker, head of the TESS mission, suggests that the satellite might find as many as, many as 500 super-Earths, uh, super-Earth-like planets, um, 1.5 to 2 times that of Earth, and several dozen Earth-sized planets. The transits are a repeating phenomenon. Once you've established that a given host star has planets, you can predict where they will be in the future, Rickert said. That's really going to be one of the lasting legacies from TESS. And so the other big thing is that there is a change in the scope, as I mentioned, uh, which is that Kepler uh, took a deep look at one slice of the sky. However, TESS will be much more widely focused. It will look at red dwarf star systems uh, throughout the local uh, universe. And these are actually where the majority of exoplanets have already been located. Now, red dwarfs are a little bit dimmer than our star. And so uh, the planets that might be inhabitable from our standards are a little closer to the star, which actually makes it a little bit easier to see them probably uh, as they transit. It's changing the nature of the dialogue, Stephen Reinhardt, a project scientist, explained. So far, the nature of our conversations about exoplanets have really been statistical. With TESS, we'll find planets around bright stars that are well-suited to follow-up observations, where we can talk not just about what the population is like, but we can start talking about what individual planets are like. Now, while Kepler looked at around 200,000 stars, TESS will actually look at 20 million. Of course, TESS won't get us to aliens or directly to living among the stars. Sorry. Habitability is one of the philosophical questions of our time, Reinhardt said. Can we find evidence that there is even a possibility of other life nearby us in the universe? Tess isn't going to quite get us there. Tess is an important step forward. Now, even though that's, you know, a little bit upsetting that it's not the next big thing that will get us to uh, leaving the Earth. Uh, NASA is actually very excited about this. And so NASA's astrophysics director, Paul Hertz, uh, sort of echoed the optimism of the team and said that TESS is ex said uh, that after TESS is done, you'll be able to go outside at night, take your grandchild by the hand and point to a star and say... I know there's a planet around that star. Let's talk about what planet might, what the planet might be like, said Hertz. Nobody's ever been able to do that in the history of mankind. So that is pretty spectacular. I am pretty impressed by that. And so, yeah. Okay. 
let us move on from the sky and possibilities of aliens and uh, switch to one of the other uh, sort of big subjects of uh, skepticism, which is, of course, health skepticism. Apparently, (laughs) we are in the middle of World Homeopathy Awareness Week. So I would like to make sure that you are aware that homeopathy is pure, unadulterated quackery. Homeopathy, the consumption of either tinctures or sugar pills that have extreme dilutions of some sort of substance, often a poison, is based on the idea that like cures like. So something that can induce a fever in a healthy man like quinine might be able to cure malaria because it causes similar symptoms in a healthy subject. This was, in fact, the exact combination that gave German physician Samuel Hahnemann, who created homeopathy in 1796, the idea. Now, while one could argue with a fair amount of success that Hahnemann actually did his patients some good uh, with most of his remedies, homeopathy was not one of them. And so he actually rejected much of the heroic medicine of the day, which included things like bleedings, leeches, purges, and arsenic powder uh, cures, amongst other uh, what they called heroic interventions. And so technically that that was actually pretty probably good for his patients. Um, And so it turns out that Hahnemann was in many ways a much more modern thinker about medicine. Uh, He gave his patients prescriptions for fresh air, personal hygiene, regular baths, exercise, and nourishing diets. All of that sounds like great advice. Now, unfortunately, this didn't help him make a living. And so he actually had to rely on his ability as a polyglot uh, to make a living. He translated medical texts into various languages or from various languages into uh, German and So that is actually where he learned of the so-called quinine cure for malaria. Not so-called. It is. Quinine is very useful um, against malaria. But um, this is where he had the, the idea to try just taking some quinine, even though he didn't have malaria. And so homeopathy comes from the Greek homeos, meaning like, and pathos, meaning suffering. Hahnemann, uh, once he had this idea, he embarked on a series of tests that uh, are called provings. So it was sort of proof of concept uh, in a weird way. And so basically what this entails is giving healthy people a variety of noxious substances to see what effect they'd have on the subject. For instance, he surmised that belladonna could be used for sore throats because it caused throat constriction in a healthy adult. Of course, belladonna is a well-known poison. So instead of giving what would be medicinal doses of such poisons, Hedeman actually decided, in an effort I'm sure to not kill his patients, uh, he came up with this idea that his cures would work by the law of infinitesimals. And so in essence, the original poison is repeatedly diluted, each a tenfold dilution, And so often they are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dilutions later. And so by the time the solution is ready, there is no way that the original substance could be detected in the resulting water. 
Now, of course, Hahnemann had a reason for why the solution could still be healing. Dilution was not the only step. The vial had to be struck against a special leather pillow a specific number of times in order for the solution to be dynamized. In early days, conventional doctors took an extremely dim view of homeopathy. The American Medical Association was actually formed in 1846, and it was in large part a reaction to homeopaths. And they were pretty serious about it. In fact, one Connecticut doctor was actually kicked out of the uh, club because he consulted his wife, who was a homeopath. Sadly, homeopathy has not disappeared, and today it is rife for rebirth. As anti-science sentiment grows in America and elsewhere, more people are turning away from what is what I would say is traditional medicine, um, not traditional medicine in the sense of uh, folk medicine, but traditional medicine in the su- sense of what medicine means in a modern um, setting. And so I get that the reasons for some of this, I get that our medical system doesn't help because it is run by corporate greed. And I am a hundred percent on board with talking about how our system is broken in that way. But this is something we should fight against with legislation and education. We should not turn away from the medical system and embrace pseudoscientific quackery that while less expensive in the short run may cost you much more, including your life in the long run. Homeopathy is no better than placebo because it is literally a placebo. If the theory behind it were true, it would break all of the laws of science and medicine that we currently consider to be true. It is a sad fact that such pre-scientific nonsense is able to cloak itself in, in any kind of air of legitimacy. And so, yeah, um, speaking of that, uh, here is a new and fascinatingly terrible form of medical quackery. Apparently there is a product on the market currently, which suggests that you can drink some some water in order to protect your skin from the sun. Uh, weird uh, things by Tom Brady. We'll, we're leaving that out right now um, because, of course, Tom Brady famously basically said that the reason that he doesn't get sunburned is because he's very hydrated. Um, again, that's not a thing either. And so this is by a man named Ben Johnson, who is the founder of Osmosis Skincare. And he claims that just a teaspoon of his drinkable sunscreen gives one three hours of protection from damaging ultraviolet light. Apparently, it is supposed to be harmonized water made by manipulating radio waves that naturally occur in water to give them uv canceling properties then duplicating that process hundreds of thousands of times and bottling that water up (sighs) so in fact this is literally another form of homeopathy this time without even a hint of a reminder of a substance contained within the water According to Johnson, some sort of device is used on the water using a proprietary math formula, which imprints frequencies on water molecules by forming a standing wave. Once digested or ingested, the water is supposed to magically travel to the surface of the body, and it then vibrates on the skin and blocks the UV rays. 
Johnson suggests that this is similar to that this is similar to how noise reduction headphones work. These waters help to cancel out and rebalance internal disharmonies by delivering medicinal radio frequencies to your cells in the form of water. As you can tell from my tone of voice, this is nonsense. <laughs> and so uh, Johnson, who actually has an M MD, uh, but had to surrender his medical license after admitting to unprotected unprofessional conduct at his laser hair removal and skincare practice, uh, probably just, you know, not being very good at it. <laughs> probably nothing terrible. Uh, trying to sell people water instead of actually giving them real treatments. Uh, so again, this is another person who couldn't make it in medicine. And so he decided to sell water in order to make money. Uh, so yes, he is selling water free from the shackles of a professional medical association, which might try to check his claims. And so apparently a number of frequencies can be achieved as there are different bottles of water to treat everything from fatigue to low libido to digestive problems to mental health problems, a whole range. But unless you're dehydrated, this water will not help you with any of those problems. Uh, and we're almost out of time, but I did want to finish up by saying that, uh, the recent discovery of the so-called interstitium, uh, which has been touted as a new organ is almost certainly not really a new organ. It is a neat thing. Uh, but Neil Theis, the pathologist who described the interstitium, uh, clearly has a specific agenda and that is to integrate uh, again, this sort of quack medicine into uh, traditional medicine. And so he is trying to say, well, this could be the way that uh, that uh, acupuncture works. And it's like, no, mm -mm. <laughs> that's not how it works. So I've talked about the idea before that Western medicine isn't a thing. There is medicine much, but not all of which was developed in first world nations. And then there are folk remedies and pre-scientific modalities, usually practiced by people without access to medicine, but now also adopted by a large section of neo-primitives who reject modernity. So when uh, Theis uses terms like Western medicine in his paper, it's a red flag that his views are not mainstream. So even though the interstitium is very interesting, it is not as interesting as he is trying to make it, and it is not an explanation for why acupuncture might work. Even not having found it, if acupuncture did work, we would have already found that out through, through uh, trials, and we haven't. It continues to be no better than placebo. All right. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. Uh, they will be joined tonight by uh, the mayor of East Hampton. So if you're interested in that, please do stay tuned. And I will be back next week. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.